Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar's Onward, now nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. Directed by Dan Scanlon, Onward is the story of two brothers who embark on a magical quest to bring back their father for one day. Now streaming on Disney+, Plus, see the film the Los Angeles Times calls a delicacy of feeling that approaches the sublime, Academy eligible in all categories. Multi-hyphenate Branford Marcellus is a saxophonist, composer, and the former band leader of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. We talk with him today about growing up in a musical dynasty in New Orleans, his work with Spike Lee, and laying down a fascinating rhythm as the composer of the Netflix movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, based on the August Wilson play, here on Crew Call. First question to you is: um, I want to know about how it was growing up in New Orleans um, with with your dad, Ellis, who I, I'm sorry passed away recently. Yes. Um, and just you know, you're a you're a jazz dynasty, well, and I'm curious, how was it like each of you had you know your saxophone, Winton's. Winton's trumpet, Delphio is a trombonist, Jason's a jazz drummer. Your other two siblings, I don't know if they were in music, but um, how were you competitive? Did dad specifically put you into different instruments? Um, Tell me, tell me about it. Okay. Uh, Well, for most of my for most of my young life, it was just really four rambunctious boys. Uh, Winton and I were quite wild. And uh, <laughs> uh, very often the victims, well, not the victims, the beneficiaries of uh, daddy spankings for our behavior. And uh, we deserved it. We were pretty, we were just boys. You know how boys can be really, constantly balls of energy bouncing around it's like they understand that better now because uh, i was going to catholic school and they were killing me because you know why won't you behave and now they understand that is behavior for boys so we were those boys though we were those boys and uh i was playing piano and i hated it i started when i was five i played until i was about eight never really took to it. And there was one particular time when I was six or, and my mother, who was actually the, the disciplinarian in the house, she said, uh, you, you didn't practice today. I said, I, I don't want to do this. So she drags me to the piano and she says, you're going to sit there until you practice. I never practiced because uh, I have her spirit in me. So you're not going to tell me what to do. And even to this day, I have this very vivid recollection of me, of my dad picking me up from the piano where I had fallen asleep and carrying me to the to my bed. Uh, my brother Winton turned six and said that he wanted to play the trumpet. My dad was working for a very famous New Orleans trumpeter at the time named Al Hurt. So Al said, uh, I'll just give him a trumpet. I have a ton of them from this company, LeBlanc, that he was a, uh, they sponsored him. He endorsed them. So went and got a trumpet and I came up with a scheme in my little young brain. Uh, If I join the school band, then I won't have to play piano because you can't have a piano in the school band. So I said, I want to join the school band too. And my dad said, so what do you want to play? I I didn't know. I said, "Uh, the trumpet. And my dad said, uh, no, you know, he said something ridiculous. Knowing him, he probably said something like, you know, Einstein states that the same matter can occupy the same space at the same time our chaos ensues. You know, I'm seven. What? No, you can't play. There won't be two people in the same family playing the same instrument. That's just a recipe for disaster. Pick another instrument. I said, I don't know. And he says, well, what about the clarinet? Okay. So he called uh, 
one of his colleagues, Pee Wee Spitalera, who was the clarinetist with Al Hurt. And he too was an endorser of LeBlanc instruments. So I got this LeBlanc clarinet and I started when I was seven and I played the clarinet for seven years. I loved it until I turned 14. And then I started to notice, really notice girls. I mean, notice them like, wow. And then I, I followed these girls once. Um, they were going to a dance. I didn't know where they were going. I just thought they were so pretty that I was just, you know, working on my stalker game at the age of 10 to age of 14, you know, who knows, you 14. And I followed them into this dance. And when I got to the door of the dance, I danced horribly. So I wasn't going to go in there. That is not to my advantage. Dancing in front of girls is a zero for me. So I said, wow, there's a band playing. Cause this is before, this is right before disco. This is about five or six years before disco DJs show up turntables for that sort of line of work. And I said, uh, well, if I join the band then I can meet girls. So I came home and said, uh, I want to play the saxophone. My dad said, oh, okay, where'd that come from? So oh, I don't know. I just want, I want to join a band. And he laughed and it was an R and B band. So I know there's the image of, of, of the family, you know, like the Von Trapps, you know, Charlie Parker cornflakes, you know, and now we're going to learn jazz solos. Sing along, kids. It really wasn't <laughs> like that. You know, Winton uh, got serious about playing jazz when he was 12. I didn't really take it seriously until I was about 19. So between 14 and 19, I was a straight up funketeer. So I was in an R&B band. Uh, two years in, I kind of uh, cajoled Winton into joining the band. He didn't want to join it because it was not, quote unquote, serious. But after a few months, he was like, when's band practice? He loved it because it was just fun. We were having fun. We were playing popular songs. People were dancing and we were getting paid to do it. And uh, you, were playing, you were playing, when you say popular songs, do you mean jazz or just? Or no, I said popular. Yeah. <laughs> jazz. No, jazz is not popular. No, we were playing. The first song I learned, it just, I just heard it. Uh, the first song I had to learn was a song by Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes called Wake Up Everybody. Uh, Teddy Pendergrass was still singing in the band at that time. And from there, I had to learn George Benson's Masquerade. Uh, it was uh, The Love I Lost. It just, it just started. I said to suddenly I was listening to the radio and learning songs from Earth, Wind & Fire, from LTD, from the Commodores, from... Uh, uh, a band called Brick, another band called LTD, which was the band that Jeffrey Osborne was in before he left and became a solo act, Shaka Khan and Rufus. That's what I did for five years. Uh, and I was a 14-year-old in a band full of men who had jobs and families. So they would never learn the music. So I came up with this idea. I'll learn everybody's parts for every new song. And when we had band practice on Thursday, I'll just teach you guys the songs. This drove my mother crazy. These men are taking advantage of you. They're utilizing your talent. I said, I'm actually getting more out of it than they would ever get out of doing it because I'm learning how I'm, I'm what I was really doing was I'm thinking I'm going to make sure that we stay current so I can get paid. But what I was really learning how to do is I was learning uh, in an autodidact way, autodidactic way. I was learning, uh, the function of each instrument, because I had to learn what the bass player did, what the guitar player did, the keyboard. So what I was really learning through doing this was what great, ba what great bass lines sound like, how they complement the rest of the rhythm section, what the keyboard player should do, what the drummer does. I was learning all these things. It took me about an hour to learn a three-minute song when I was 14. By the time I was 15, I could learn it as it was coming off the record. And I did that. I was like the 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 de facto music director for this band full of adults uh, until I was 18 or 19 when I went away to college. Uh, and it was at the Berklee College of Music when I first uh, started getting the idea of playing jazz because uh, Winton had already moved to New York. He got a full scholarship to Juilliard and he started playing with this great jazz drummer, Art Blakey, in 1979. Uh, and we had a hilarious thing where he had this particular record cover we would often make fun of. It was in my dad's collection. And being kids, we would look at the albums. We would never listen to them. And he said, I just joined this 
guy, Art Blakey's band. I'm like, who's Art Blakey? He says, you know, the drummer. I said, I don't know. And he says, remember that album cover we used to make fun of all the time? I said, oh, that guy? You're playing with that guy? Is he still alive? Yeah, he's alive. And so I went around the corner to the local record store where they were selling records for music students. So they were all discount used records, et cetera. And there was that record. So rather than just pick it up, I said, why don't I buy this to hear what they're doing? And it, the record was called Moaning, Moaning by Art Blakey. And it was one of the greatest records. I love this record. And a few months later, Winton was coming to Boston with the band to play with the band. And I was bragging on my brothers, you know, oh man, you gotta hear my brother. And people were getting sick of this. Oh, your brother, your brother. Cause it's not <laughs> like now where you could just pull up YouTube and say, hey, look, you know, oh yeah, your brother, you, you guys, man, yeah, right. And then they heard him and they were like, oh my God, he's incredible. I said, I told you, I told you. <laughs> it, was, it was at that concert that I said, you know, this jazz thing doesn't look too bad. And I told Wenton after the concert, I said, yeah, man, I'm thinking I might want to start playing jazz. And he goes, huh, since when? I said, since now. And it was a big joke, you know, between Winton and dad. Oh, now you want to play jazz. You think it's that easy. I'm like, all right, you see. And that's basically how I got started. In, in playing. And then you went on tour when you were a kid, right? In college with, yeah. with some really big acts. Well, Winton was playing with Blakey and Blakey started a, a big band, which is a small big band. It was an expanded, the traditional horn section and an art Blakey combo was three. Uh, alto sax, tenor sax, and trumpet, or tenor sax, trumpet, and trombone. And then he expanded to include a baritone saxophone, uh, an additional trumpet player, and a trombone. So it went from three to six. And I was the baritone saxophone player in that band. And that was my first taste of the life. The summer and of then, 1980. And then you were hooked because you stayed, you, you yeah. played with a lot of acts going going all the way up to, to Sting. Well, yeah, when I, when I finally moved to New York in 81, I was playing with people who were instrumental to my development, but they weren't big names. You know, uh, uh, I'm looking right at his face too. Uh, of course, old age is getting me, man. But uh, there was a piano player who basically looked like a lion, Walter Davis III. Walter Davis III, who played piano with Charlie Parker, uh, Sadiq Hakim played piano with uh, Charlie Parker. Walter Bishop played piano with Charlie Parker. And they started hiring me to do these, these little, little gigs around town and tell me stories. And I learned a lot from those guys. Uh, and eventually, uh, Elvin Jones called me to join his group, which was really cool. Because Elvin Jones was the drummer with the great John Coltrane in the 60s. And just as I was about to start touring with them, Blakey called and asked me to join the band with my brother. So clearly my brothers, that's, that's going to win. So I made uh, Elvin's manager uh, and wife very pissed off by just saying, yeah, I can't, I can't make it. Uh, I'm going to start playing with Blakey and Blakey. They're both drummers. They're, they're, they're friends, but rivals and you know, oh, really? Well, good luck. And hung up the phone and that started uh, playing with Blakey and, uh, then joined my brother's band and started playing other things. And uh, Sting called me around 1985, which was an out of the blue call to me. It was an out really? of the blue call. Well, I didn't know him. Uh, I think I think what happened was there was a a a, a woman who worked for the uh, publicity department at Columbia, Mary Ellen Catanio, and we became really good friends. And she was really good friends with Andy Summers, the guitar player with the police. Mm -hmm. And whenever they would come to the state, she'd put together a, a, a care package of all the new Columbia CDs and just give them for their tour since they were going to be on tour buses. And because she and I were friendly, she stuck my CD in there. And by the time they got to New York, Mary Ellen called me and said, hey, uh, if you want to come meet the guys in the police, because they absolutely love your record. They think it's the best thing they've heard and blah, blah, blah. So there was a party for them before they played Shea Stadium in 83. Uh, I had already had tickets to that concert because my girlfriend at the time, uh, I hadn't listened to any non-jazz music from basically 1979 to 1983. And my, uh, my girlfriend played uh, Zenyatta and the more I listened to it, I said, who is this band? She goes, oh, it's a cool band called The Police. It is like a reggae thing. They're from London. So I went out the next day and bought 
Zenyana Mandata, and then there's a record prior to that, Outlandos D'Amour, and I said, man, these things are great. And then not long after that, Synchronicity came out. So that was the tour when they were coming to New York, and I met the guys in chat. I mean, literally, five minutes. Hey, guys, you guys are great. It's been fun. You know, thanks for liking the record, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, we want to invite you to our concert. I said, I already got tickets, bro. <laughs> really? I said, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Great concert. And two years later, I get a call from a guy named Vic Garbarini, who was working at Musician Magazine at the time, which no longer exists. And he said, uh, Sting would like to meet you at the Odeon restaurant on West Broadway in New York City. I thought it was a prank because I'm a prankster and my friends, we, we give as good as we get. I'm like, this is a good one. You know, and I was uh, telling my, my, it was my first wife at the time. I said, hey, we're we're going to the Odeon for what? I said, either we're going to meet Sting or we're going to have a good laugh and a good meal. I'm not sure. And when I walked into the restaurant, the uh, the greeter, Mater D is what I, they, they're changing these words now, but the greeter said, may I help you? And I felt like the biggest ass in the world. I'm like, I'm going to walk up here and say, I'm here to meet Sting. And he goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, buddy. Yeah, you know, so I walked up. I said, hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh yeah, I'm I'm I think I'm here to see Sting. He goes, oh, yeah, he's right over there. He's been waiting for you. He's over in the corner. <laughs> and he basically just said, Hey man, you know, I'm laying it out. I'm starting a band. I want you to play saxophone. I said, done, we're in. Wow. That was it. And you said, I mean, and the saxophone was huge on that album. It's beautiful. On the well, uh, on the I, 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 well I I hesitated at first because I, at first I thought it was gonna be like we want to augment the police and for me having heard the police and knowing the music they didn't need a horn section they, they just didn't need one so the idea of just going to be in the horn section but when he said i'm starting a new project and i want you in it i'm like yeah great that means it could be anything i didn't know what it would would mean but it could be anything because this the police had a clearly defined sound to my ears and i didn't know how it would have fit into that but this yeah this could work so um, d during the 80s, I, I was reading up and I was curious, you had some roles in some movies, yeah. Obama from the trade. Yeah, yeah. But also um, you, you're playing the saxophone in the beginning portion of Do the Right Thing. Right. How did that come about, hooking up with Spike? And was that your first moment, was that the first time you were involved in terms of providing music for film? Um, yeah, these things are all, no, actually, well, the first time I, I, we played a song in Throw Mama from the Train. Uh, you know, it was done and shot in LA. So I hired some, some, some good friends who were musicians in LA. Uh, Tony Dumas on bass, Ralph Penland on drums and uh, Billy Childs on piano. And we played this tune for the, for the movie. Uh, Spike and I were neighbors in Brooklyn. And Spike came to our house to ask us uh, to invest in his first film. Uh, well, his second film, his first film was a school project, but his second film, uh, She's Gotta Have It. And he never worked up the courage to ask us to uh, invest in the film. And we were having a great time hanging out because he said, yeah, my name's Spike Lee, you know, um, I'm a filmmaker. And it's like, great, come on in, bro. You know, because we're from New Orleans. We're not going to stand him out, stand out on the stoop the whole time. And he came in and he said, yeah, my dad's a bass player. Uh, Bill Lee and Winton, it triggered Winton. This man, Bill Lee, did he have a band called The Descendants of Mike and Phoebe? And Spike was, yeah. And as soon as Winton said the name I remembered, when I was nine and Winton was eight, my dad said, I got a friend who's got a band from New York and we're going to go hear him. And the name of the band was The Descendants of Mike and Phoebe. Wow. So wow. it really was funny. I was like, yeah, we heard your dad. Winton was like, I heard your dad when I was eight. So it was like a really small world kind of thing. But Spike and I really hit it off as friends. So you invested in, in, this, in his second film? No, he didn't. He, he wanted to ask us and he never did. Oh, so interesting. We just, he left. We just thought it was a friendly neighborhood visit. He, he tells me years later, I really wanted to ask you guys to invest in the film. I'm like, well, we would have if you had asked, but you didn't. So, <laughs> so we just hit it off as friends. We, we, we'd see each other a couple times a week, talk on the phone, hang out. And uh, 
he asked me to to play this song with Public Enemy, uh, fight the power for a do the right thing. I mean, they were a pretty self-contained unit. So when I went in, uh, the producers, this guy uh, Hank Shockley, and the uh, the the assistant producer, yeah. sampler wizard uh, Eric Sadler, I just said, "Look, you guys tell me what you want me to do because y'all have a fixed thing here. I don't have any ideas." And they said, "Do three passes." Do one in a very traditional mode, like a traditional jazz mode. Do the other one like an R&B sound. And the other one, just play free and wild and do whatever. So I uh, did all three passes. It took about 15, 20 minutes. I said, which one are you going to pick? He says, I don't know. And he tells the engineer, put all three up at the same time. And he puts them up. He goes, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I said, no, it's not it. But uh in the movie, they used the R&B-ish kind of track, but on the power sax version, they used all three. And it does really sound kind of noisy and good. Um, jumping forward, how, how, did you, how did you wind up becoming the band leader on The Tonight Show? And what kind of process is that? I mean, I think NBC, I think Late Night Show, they are, they are historically and traditionally obsessed about ratings and pairing and yeah. test groups and this right. and that. How did this, uh, how did it all, how did it all come, come about? I have a thesis, which I can't prove. <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, Cullen Kushnick, who was the executive producer at the time and Jay's mm-hmm. manager called my manager and said, we yeah. want this guy to do the show. I'm like, why me? Uh, I'm thinking it was a way of like, because when Jay took over, they were in that middle, like uh, you know, Letterman was, was, was rising and he had his set audience and it was the college kids, a lot of college kids, people between the age of 18 and 35, they in, on the East coast, they were all Letterman people. Uh, Johnny Carson had the older people from the Midwest and the South. So in the and and then suddenly out of nowhere comes Arsenio Hall, and all the black folks start watching Arsenio. So I think that there may have been a decision to try to hire me because I wear suits and I do the whole thing, uh, to to draw the more conservative black audience towards the Tonight Show, and away from Arsenio, and it probably worked, because. Uh, Six months after we got on the air, Arsenio was off the air. I was going to say, Arsenio stopped his run pretty early in the 90s. Yeah. 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 Same year, we, 92. So yeah. that's my thesis. Can't prove it, but that, that, that in my mind, it was always tactical, which doesn't bother me in the slightest because uh, I have plenty of friends. I'm not, you know, I don't need to be, that's like, I think my greatest strength. I don't need to be loved by people I don't know. I just don't need that kind of false gratification. So um, we did the show and it was fun and it was good and very different than anything that I'd ever done because I'm, I'm a really kind of straight shooter, as you know, when I, when I talk. And because a jazz musician, you say whatever you want, nobody gives a damn. And suddenly on this show and you have people saying, you can't say things like that. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I get it. But then the question is, do I really want to be this person? Do I really want to be the person that is constantly going through self-censor? Like I had this technique, somebody would ask me a question and I would say in your mind, cancel your first response and your second response and give your third response. So there was oh always my God. a pause. Wow. So I said this thing. They said, how do you think, what do you think about, you know, you being on the Tonight Show? I said, it's really, it's about time they had some color on the whitest show in America. <laughs> Was it the whitest show in America? Probably not. That would probably be like uh, Lawrence Welk or something like that, if I'm just throwing <laughs> a name out. But it was just, my, my, my humor is really sardonic and really uh-huh. ironic. And I just threw it out there. Man, that shit made headlines like the next day. So like Carson had a couple of jokes that night taking pot shots at me and I'm saying, shit, nobody even knows who I am. 
So this was like an, an insider. They were doing it for their own benefit because it's not like anybody watching his show would know who I was. I was like, man, this is a lot different than anything that I've ever been like. I, like the words go out like lightning. Wow. And I did this. I did this college thing. This is before the show even started. It was a master class. And I'm talking to music students. And they said, what about the theme? And I said, oh, you know, the theme is effective. It's good. It's not the best piece of music I ever wrote. But it has, it has to be like this because it's, for, it's not for music students. It's not a classical thing or a jazz thing. It's this thing. It has to kind of, the next day, USA Today, Marcellus hates his theme song. I mean, it was just, what the wow. fuck is this? I mean, it was really like, I can't believe, you know, it's like, it was like lightning, which is not nearly what I said. So I didn't have enough varnish. Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar's Onward, now nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. Directed by Dan Scanlon, Onward is the story of two brothers who embark on a magical quest to bring back their father for one day. Now streaming on Disney+, Plus, see the film the Los Angeles Times calls a delicacy of feeling that approaches the sublime, Academy eligible in all categories. I think, just as you say this, this is my assumption, I'm thinking, you know, that, that war between Jay and Dave was so intense that it had to just be the hot potato of it all. Maybe. I just, yeah. I just think that... Just the shock, the, the, the shock mm-hmm. waves of it. Like, I, think that, I think that it was pre-internet. It was certainly pre-Donald Trump, so people were genuinely shocked by language. <laughs> and... If I had said that now, it would be, mean almost nothing. It would mean because yeah. there's almost nothing that's off the table now. But in 1992, before cell phones and social media, you know, everybody was getting their source of news from a few places, and it, it meant a lot to a lot of people. And it's like you know, like when President Trump would say something crazy and say, oh, "I was just kidding." He wasn't really kidding, but I was really kidding. But people yeah. thought I wasn't. Yeah. And it was like, whoa. So, you know, you get two years, three years in the process. And then I played a concert with, with an orchestra in San Francisco. I was playing the Iber Concertino. And I was shocked at how poorly I played with just that little bit of time off. Because my dad used to have this saying about everything. He's like, the thing you do most is the thing you do best when you play a classical concert or play with it, which I wasn't doing at that time in my life too often, or you play in a jazz concert, you're playing a hundred thousand notes in a concert. And then I'm going from that to a setting where I'm playing maybe a hundred notes the entire day. So how long does it take before the technique starts going away and starts slipping? The answer is about a year and then you can feel it. And mm-hmm. I was put in this, not, by anyone, but just by fate, I was in this position where I had to decide if I really liked the situation enough to stop being a musician. Because at this rate, five years in, most of the stuff I worked on was going to evaporate. Mm-hmm. Is, and, this, is this how Buckshot LaFunk was born? Which, well, by the way, was, is really, really fun music. Well, what, Really what, chill. What it was, was I, I, I had to leave the show and I had to get back to playing music full time. And Buckshot was born. There's a, there's a great uh, DJ in hip hop. His name is DJ Premier, or his stage name is DJ Premier. And Premier and I grew to be very close because Spike put us together to work on the song at the end of Mo' Better Blues, which was the film after Do the Right Thing. Yeah, yeah. And the song- I saw that in Okay, there you go. Yeah. And, and, and the song did well. 
And right around the time we were making it, he and his uh, partner, uh, Guru, who was the rapper in his group Gangstar, they got kicked out of their apartment in the Bronx. And I was living in Brooklyn at the time and I had room. I said, well, shit, come stay with me for a few months. It's okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. And we just got really close and talked about all sorts of things, the music business, music in general. And when I was, he came to LA to have meetings and do production and wanted to stay for a while. And I said, man, just stay with me. I mean, it's not like he, he can just rent a, a hotel for six months and, and not feel a pinch in his pocket. And I'm like, yeah, come stay with me. So we talked every day and I'd say, well, if you had to do a record that had like hip hop, like what are the things that people in hip hop hate? And he was <laughs> saying, you know, no hard guitar. I said, what is hard guitar? And he meant distorted guitar. I mean, we don't like that. I said, really? Okay, so we got to have a record with that on it. So I wanted to, everything that the, the hip hoppers hated, we had to do a record and include all of those things. So all of this was happening and we threw conversation right at the time that I was deciding to leave the show. So when, when I left the show, I said, Premier, we're going to do this. We were in the middle of 95. I said, we're going to do this record. And we were calling people and saying, come be on this record. I mean, we called everybody. Greg Fillingames, who was the musical director for Michael Jackson for a while and a great piano player and keyboard player. Nils Lofgren, who was the guitarist with Springsteen. And they were good friends of mine. I said, man, come play on this record. And he goes, well, what is it? I said, I have no idea what it is. We're figuring, we're just playing stuff. And that's how the whole session kind of went. We would just bring people in. They would play on it. And then they liked it and they asked to play on a second song. And we just put these songs together very gradually. And then that became uh, Buckshot Lafont. You did the music to the 2010 revival of Fences. Right. Was that the first, now, the first time, Denzel was in that production. Yes. But was George C. Wolf involved? No, it was Kenny Leon. But tell me about providing music, you know, because when we go, I mean, sometimes when I think of music in a play, I think of it at, at, at the bookends, the beginning and the end. Um, like a Broadway play. Right. What was it like providing music for Fences and, and, and for August Wilson then and, and, had it, and then bridging over to Ma Rainey? Uh, I mean, there's a history uh, of it. Uh, Schumann, Beethoven, mm -hmm. they called it incidental music. Like friends of theirs who were, were because people in the arts community were really close together back then. Uh, classical composers were writing uh, songs to the words of their favorite poets and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I don't remember, I guess it may have been Kenny who asked me to write incidental music for the play. And I loved it. I love the idea of it because I have to write music that reflects on what has just happened or music that is uh, prescient, you know, trying to give people an emotional template for about, about what's about to happen. And it's not a lot of music. And I don't think that the play's needed, but it's nice to have something when they're doing the set change rather than darkness. And uh, given what it was, I used a lot of my, uh, my, my students from college to play on it with the university where I teach North Carolina Central University. Uh, so they could have a practical experience uh, recording and it, it did really well. I, whatever I, the whole Tony nomination, again, that's bizarre to me because I, and I was, so when I got it, I was like, wow, that's, that's nice. So you think you win? I said against people who are writing Broadway shows with, 25 songs? No, I shouldn't win. This is, it's nice. I'm flattered. I'm really flattered, but there is no way that I should win for writing incidental music. And people like the incidental music, and that's wonderful. That was really great. But when you're talking about 
musicals. Musicals should win these things. So I wasn't at all disappointed when I when we didn't when I didn't win. So the, the tell me about working with George initially, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. George is a, a psychopath, and I don't I don't mean it in the axe murderer type. I mean it in like the 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 textbook kind of medical definition of the word. He's psychopathic, meaning that. I won't, well, no, not, that's not true. He's not, psychopaths are ruled by their instincts. But he will go with an instinct immediately. Just go. And I know a lot of musicians like that. So I was like, okay. When I started working with him, he, he makes determinations. I, this is, a, this, so uh, Henrietta Lacks was just, he and I going back and forth. Because he has a really sharp wit and I have a really sharp wit. And since Americans, as a nation, we don't really enjoy irony too much. We, we're, we're more like the slapstick variety or the sarcastic variety. So we were going at each other and the people in the room did not honestly know if we were really hating each other or really, they had no clue because that kind of humor, you know, like I would say, well, yes, your fullness. And he goes, that's correct. Praise me. I said, when don't I? And then people are going, oh, shit, these guys are going at it. And we were just having a blast. Because we, we'd had conversations prior to that, decades before, because he used to do a lot of work with the public theater uh-huh. in New York. I, yes, yeah. And, and Winton and I lived on Bleecker Street. And when we had some time off, that was kind of the theater we'd go to. We'd walk down the street to the public theater and we'd you know, hang out with George and say, you know, hey, man, you know, we... We're some country boys too. You're from Kentucky. We're from Louisiana. It was just like a thing. The circle's small that way. But uh, George is, is just really mercurial. Like he says, I like it. And then a second later, I don't like it. Write me something else. So I started to notice I'm going to write all of this music and he's only going to use about 10% of it. I said, well, that's going to be a good exercise for me because it's a challenge to write and write and write and write. And he says, change the emotion and try to change the emotion on the scene when you're convinced it's another thing. So I just used it as, a, as an exercise. And it was the same thing with Ma, even though I was a little better at it because when I started working on Henrietta Lacks, there was a music editor named Jim Bruning. And Jim just did some work on, he just was the music editor for uh, In the Heights, the movie. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. He is so awesome. He plays saxophone, which he didn't tell me at the time. Bastard didn't tell me. But, uh, and he has such great musical instincts and he helped me with a lot of the orchestration, just giving me directions of things that I had forgotten because it had been decades since I tried anything like that. And when the Ma Rainey project showed up, I still had that experience. It, It had only been a year. So I was like, great, now I know what I'm doing too. I have the right equipment, I have everything. And uh, I called Jim, he gave me some pointers. I wish he could have done the project, but he couldn't because he was working on In the Heights and that's completely understandable. And it was, uh, it, w- it was fun to, to, to and, and this time I said, well, we'll get a soundtrack. Like, the, like when Henrietta Lacks came along, I didn't even think about getting the soundtrack. And this time I said, yeah, we, I'm gonna write a bunch of music because George requires it and I'm gonna write it again and I'm gonna rewrite it and I'm gonna rewrite it. And all the rewrites can be their own standalone things. So we're just gonna have a soundtrack. And the, uh, when, when, the, when the soundtrack company agreed, they called me and they said, well, we're really concerned because there's, as we can tell, there's only about 20 minutes of music in the movie. And I said, well, if you knew George, if it wasn't a movie about musicians, there'd be about nine minutes of music in the movie. And the guy says, well, that's, I said, don't worry. There's well over an hour and 45 minutes of written music for the movie. It's just not in the movie. And they said, oh, Oh, we're relieved. I said, great. So it, it was plenty of, uh, there's plenty of material when you work with George because he's very instinctive and he changes his mind. How did, did you arrange any of the standards used in the movie? Yeah, did I had to. I had to because a couple of the songs, the original songs, there are eight or nine musicians, but because of the, the, the screenplay in the movie, I, could ha- I had to write it for four musicians. It had to be for piano, bass, 
cornet and trombone. Which, 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 which Ma standard? Rainey's Black Bottom, Deep Moaning uh-huh. Blues, uh, and the other one, uh, Hear Me Talking to You. You had to, it had to be for four, four instruments. But if you listen to the original versions, there were six, seven, eight, nine musicians on some of these, these songs. And one of them in particular, the guy plays a kazoo. On the other one, the guy plays the saw. I mean, there's all these crazy things on her records. It's really great. What I love in the movie, in, as far as the use of score, first of all, sometimes when I watch, I, the last I remembered was, and I don't want to name this because I don't want to, but there was a TV show and they were using a faint score underneath. And I'm like, ah, what good is that? What does that do for the drama? It's so, right. you could hardly hear it. It was, it was just one tone. But right. what's so nuanced and beautiful in this is you've got these, you've got these, these, these monologues. You've got Toledo's speech about leftovers. You've right. got, um, you know, uh, Cutler's Re- Reverend Gates right. monologue. And you play, you'll do like, there's soft jazz, there's a horn, there's a droopy piano. And it is just, it really, as, as light as it is, props the drama and accentuates it. And yet it's jazzy and it's, it works. And it's just such a beaut. It, I, I just loved what you did. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, no, I appreciate it. That's 80s that, kid, John, you know, right. eating, eating John Williams up. Right. So everything's got to be, you know, in my head, boom, boom, symphonic, but right. man, what you did here is just really, can you talk about that? Expound on that? Like what yeah. you and George talked about? Oh, that that's all George. That's all, that's all George. I wrote like, for instance, uh, the Reverend Gates, uh, the Reverend Gates cue, I wrote a cue for string quartet with piano. He goes, no, too classical. <laughs> and then uh, for Toledo's monologue, I wrote this piece for piano and 16, 16 strings and wind and, and, and woodwinds. Nope, too classical. So the, the, the Toledo leftovers with the pianist, Sean Mason, we turn that into a blues with the same melody. And George's thing is he's about the blues. He loves guitars. And there were certain people in Netflix who were really not fans of guitar at all. They were really fans of strings. And, but George wasn't going to have it because it's George's movie. So uh, the guitar player who I hired, Doug Womble, was just confused because you had these contrasting styles that George was just kind of smashing together. And as he was playing it, he's like, I, I don't understand what this is. I said, George understands. Just go with it, man. Just, you know, put your frustration aside, you know, put your quit. It's not a music. It's not a music session. It's a scoring session. And the director has a clear idea of what he wants or close enough. And he's going to change his mind five or six times and make you do all of these things. And then they'll put it together in post he and the music uh the music editor will put it together in post so a lot of that is uh is uh it's george's doing it's not mine so i was wondering were you on set were you i was i was on set when the when the band was doing things because i needed to make sure that they were physically they choreographed physically that it looks correct Mm -hmm. because there's so many movies that come out and most people don't pay attention to this but still that doesn't mean it should just be so blatantly incorrect as fingers moving when no sounds coming and you should try your best to try to make it look as authentic as possible did did chadwick play cornet he did wow Uh, you know he didn't play it well because it takes years to learn how to play an instrument he learned it in months but his uh his trumpet teacher or his cornet teacher, but his trumpet teacher was my, the, the guy, uh, Chuck Finley, who played in the Tonight Show band with me. Oh, wow. The, the, the producers, I guess they have a habit of calling college professors to do it. Because they would say, oh, we have this professor. We're going to say, why not get a player? Get a player. And I said, call this guy Chuck Finley. And then they said, oh, okay. And then I never heard about it. So 
uh, I assumed that they hadn't called Chuck. And it's their, their, it's their production. They can in the end do what they want. And I was talking to Chadwick about something and he laughed when I said, he said, that's the same thing Chuck says. And that's when I realized that he had studied with Chuck. So then I called Chuck and said, Hey man, thanks for doing it. It was great. But yeah, Chadwick was playing. Chadwick, he, he, he called me early on and asked for a, a fingering chart, fingering chart to get the, <clears throat> the fingerings correct. And he looked good. He looked the whole band, everybody in he the band, great. he looked really great. He looked phenomenal. I, mm-hmm. I was like, wow. I, I, when I was a kid, I played trumpet right. from 10 to 12. And then right. um, my, and I was, I thought I was good at it. Right. <laughs> I don't know. But my music teacher made me hate it. You know, they, <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing. They, they press on you, press on you. Yeah, they do. They do. And um, which is, they're doing their jobs. But I don't know. I fell out of love with it. And it's an amen. I kind of go everybody, believe me. Yeah. Um, the, um, you've got some gr- fun stuff in here, like L train and Chicago sun and right. shoe shopping. Was it when you went in to write these fun jazz pieces, was it about being circa the 1920s Chicago scene era, or was it more or less, let's just write a fun jazz tune, you know, for, for the sake of the pace of the film? Um, no, I see, you see the, the scene where the musicians are walking down the L train, walking down yeah. the station, the steps of the station. Mm-hmm. And it's Chicago. It's not Alabama. It can't sound like Alabama. It doesn't sound like anything r- rural or agrarian. It's urban. Coal is the order of the day, so it's sooty, it's grimy, it's dirty, there's a smell of horse shit everywhere mixed in with cars and petrol and with the musicians walking, I said, you know, let's find something that simulates the, the motion of walking. And it's, you know, and it's a very old rhythm. Uh, there's a, an old uh, composer. His last name is Scott. I don't want to get his, but he's the guy who wrote that. <clears throat> they would use it in cartoons. Bum, 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 bum. So it's the same rhythm. Yes. Da, 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 da. Except the notes are bum 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 which yeah. is an old an old swing era old jazz swing era line, and then you just write everything else on top of that, you know. So it was really because of the scene, and then with shoe shopping and George liked it, you know. He called it walking, you know. I need the walking song, and then he was saying every scene, I want more another version of the walking song here. So there are five or six different versions of the walking song. And then he says, uh, in the studio when we're recording, he says, in, in, you know, when, 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 when Chadwick looks at the shoes in the window, there has to be some sound that creates like this bright light, like, aha. And this is in the session. I'm like, oh, shit, okay. I need 20 minutes. And I looked at it, looked at it, and I said, okay, can't use the trumpets. There's not enough trombones. There's only two saxophones. So I said, so I wrote that part in for the guys. And I said, when we get to this spot, I'll point to you and just play. Wadi! And it'll have this like, ah. So it was little things like that. A lot of the process was happening actually at the recording, not before it. I have two more questions. And thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's fun, Anthony. Thanks. Um, did you get to work with Viola? She is amazing in this so amazing we don't know it's her when in the on the opening shot i was just curious did you work with her vocally or provide any notes uh and and any insight on on her process the only thing that i i really when when we were doing the when I, i arrived on the day they were doing the tent scene which is the opening scene in the movie and Viola was uh, lip syncing. And uh, I was watching it and one of the producers said, it looks like she's lip syncing. And I said, well, she is. And she needs to stop. She has to sing. So uh, I said, uh, please tell Viola she has to sing. And they said, oh, she doesn't want to. I saw I walked over. They said, you have to sing. 
because your throat's not moving. And we can see that your throat's not moving. It doesn't have to be good. You just have to sing the parts. Sing wow. the parts. I got you covered. And it was really a good thing because there are times where she was singing to Maxanne Lewis's track and she was slightly off. And because she's not a natural musician, we went back in the studio and Maxanne came and redid her sounds and sang to Viola's track. So we had this best of both worlds combination where she was re-singing the song she sang, singing Viola's body language and singing along with Viola. So it really, it really worked out. It, it, was, it was the best possible scenario for that. But I didn't have a lot of interaction with any of the, the actors. They were, they were so damned good at their jobs. They didn't need me. I was just on the side in case they needed something. So probably in the entire filming process, maybe two hours the whole time, uh, the group would come over and before they were about to record a number and they would play, you know, uh, they would play right next to me and uh, we had a little electronic keyboard and I said, just play the rhythm to Glenn. You don't have to play the right notes. I know what the right notes are. I don't need that. Just play the, make sure you're playing the right rhythm. And it, 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 they were, they were pretty, they had it, they had it together. They were pretty amazing. What are you working on next? And is, is film scoring just one of many things for you or is it, this is it, from this point on, you're, you're, you're going to wait for the next, you know, you're going to have three films a year or anything like that, or is it just part well, of everything? Yeah. I mean, I have a jazz band. We're not working. We haven't worked since March. Um, we're probably not going to work until the fall, but I'm looking forward to getting back out there with my band. I do a lot of uh, concerts with orchestra as well. Uh, and we're going to get back to that playing some really challenging fun music. I look forward to that. Uh, and I'm writing some music for, uh, I wrote a piece for a solo baritone saxophone for a really great saxophone player in, in the Netherlands named Arno Bornkamp. Uh, I'm writing a piece based on Hungarian folk music for Hungarian musicians and American musicians. And I'm writing a piece for a saxophone quintet. So I am writing a lot now uh if another movie comes up that would be really neat i mean I, that would be great because i enjoy the process i love doing it i love doing it and uh it's one of these things where some there's probably the thought process is oh yeah well next time we need a jazz score we'll call that guy you know so even though i do a whole lot of things that aren't jazz but that's okay i mean you just you you look i look forward to the next opportunity to do it and I'm going to do my best with it and have fun. The epic Brantford Marsalis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthony. I had a blast, bro. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.